What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. And this week, we have Jay Prichidney. Now, Jay is the editor of Snowpiercer on Netflix, and the two of us go through how working on a project where you're geographically confined by the space impacts you as an editor, of course, among many other things. Now, if you like this interview, you'll love the website FilmmakerU.com. At FilmmakerU.com, they put together courses where you can learn from the best in the industry. They focus on the art and the craft of film editing, film color correction, film VFX, you name it, and it keeps updating. So if you're interested in that, you can check it out at FilmmakerU.com. And if you use AOTG as your promo code, you'll get 10% off. And with all that said, here's my interview with Jay. I talked to Paul Day, who's worked with you, and I asked him, what should I ask you? And he said that you uh, are known for bringing up young talent, so hiring assistants that are really good and then sort of helping foster them into editors. And so I was wondering what were some of the things you teach them or mentor them about? That's an amazing thing to be known for. I don't know if I am known for that, but that's great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, well, definitely um, from working on um, I worked on some kids shows, The Next Step and the spin-off show Lost and Found, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, was a low budget kids show. So it um, allowed us to really kind of have that kind of mentality of bringing on people who don't have that much experience, but kind of have the passion and the drive and the interest. You know, it can be really, really hard for people who are kind of just starting out in editing they're often kind of thinking about the wrong things. The standard thing that they face is they are cutting kind of mainly for some kind of physical continuity or almost putting together sort of like a record of what they shot on the day, um, which is not really what you want to be doing (laughs) as an editor. And to try to get people to make that leap, that kind of mental leap from going from that to understanding, well, what are the important things that I'm supposed to be looking for? And what am I supposed to be cutting for? And how do you develop your internal barometer for what's good and what's not is really a challenging thing because it all just comes down to a very personal thing, a very instinctual thing. And it's really just about developing your inner voice, you know, and kind of listening to your inner voice and kind of understanding it and how to use it which is kind of an existential question. So it's like, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing a lot of times for people to, to learn, but that's what you got to do. <laughs> is there something that when you entered the industry, you didn't know, and it's something that you teach all your assistants now because you realized how important it was? Yeah, well, I mean, I think start, starting from coming into scripted, mm-hmm. just as an example, because you know, I started in factual reality documentary kind of programming, and then I shifted into doing scripted programming. I really didn't have any idea what I was doing, <laughs> you know, and you sit down like I knew how to edit, but it's different and it's just different enough that you kind of need to develop your own kind of way of doing it. So, I mean, I just remember kind of being buried under all this footage and not really knowing exactly what to do with it. I didn't really have anyone to talk to about it. 
<laughs> so, I mean, even just that basic of how do you start approaching the footage and what do you do with it is something that I talk to editors a lot about. It sounds like a simple thing, but um, just kind of your approach to how you start looking at footage is kind of really important. And there's so many different ways to do it. So I have my own kind of way that makes sense for me. So I kind of talk about that. Mm -hmm. But I also try to explain what other editors' processes are as well, because ed different editors approach it differently. In Snowpiercer, you cut the first episode. So how did you approach that? Because pilots are so hard to cut because you have to structure them and figure out the story that's going to set everyone up, every other editor coming in to help you or work with you. So how did you approach that? What was your approach? Sorry, my eyes are kind of wide. I'm having kind of like PTSD flashbacks because <laughs> that that first episode of Snowpiercer was a very, very long process for a lot of reasons. And uh, I think it was editing, oh, probably over a year, you know, not, a, not straight, yeah. but um, it took over a year to edit. Just that, that one episode? Wow. Yeah, not straight. You yeah, know, yeah. Other things and other episodes, but from like the first day of dailies to locking it was probably well over a year, maybe a year and four months or something like that. Wow. Um, I'm not exactly sure, but what made it so challenging? There's so many things that are challenging about the show. Um, I mean, particularly in that first episode, you're setting up the whole world, you know, and it's a world that has unfamiliar rules. And it's all kind of on a train, well, obviously. But I mean, that kind of presented its own challenges in terms of how do you interpret what's going on on screen? Because you don't have a lot of the standard techniques in terms of like cutting to an exterior shot <laughs> to change the scene or something. I mean, you can do that, but then it costs like $20,000 <laughs> to, you know, put that shot in. And the way that first episode worked is it was planned to not actually have a lot of exterior shots. So originally we ended up putting a bunch in. So that's one challenge in that just trying to understand space and time, <laughs> like you have lost a lot of your markers for that because a lot of the times you don't even have windows People are wearing oftentimes a uniform. A lot of the times their clothes don't change. Um, so a lot of these things were part of the challenge. Another one was, you know, people were just very, very, very determined to make the episode great, you know? And so there was a lot of anxiety around that, especially because there was this history of the show of a original pilot mm -hmm. that you know, has never seen the light of day. So there was kind of extra anxiety because of that, because it's like, you know, the network's already seen one version of the show. We really want to present <laughs> our take, the take we feel good about, you know, and sell the new vision of the show. So, so they reshot it or they, uh, that was like a whole show from years before that they piloted and then just scrapped. Yeah, it was front, it was shot the year before. Yeah. And it was a lot of the same cast, 13 of the cast members kind of carried through. Some of them were recast in different roles. A few shots of it were used in the series. So there was a shot of a woman swimming that was used in the first episode. And there was shots involving cows that were used in the second episode. Maybe all told, maybe about 40 seconds of footage from the original pilot that made it into the series. Everything else was redone. All the sets were 
redesigned, rebuilt. None of the sets were saved. Um, none of the visual effects. I actually had a lot of visual effects completed for the original pilot. They had a train asset completed. Mm -hmm. None of that was used for the series. So it was all a complete retool. You kind of touched on this in terms of hunting outside to give people perspective of what's happening. But I've also, I'm really interested in the geography in terms of inside because you have these tiny compartments that essentially you have to keep the audience oriented of where we are on the train and what's happening and how people are traveling. So was there any difficulty with that? How did you tackle that to keep people understanding where they are in the train, also not confusing us in terms of you know what's happening in the room itself or in the train car itself? Hopefully we didn't confuse It, it didn't confuse me, so that's, that's why sure. I want to know. <laughs> they might have been confused at some times. You know, I mean, especially in that first season, there was a real interest in real... I mean, the first season was very much about class division. Mm -hmm. And so there was a real... Um, desire to really delineate the cars, not just by the set design, but how it's shot. The cars in the back are much shakier. It's much uh, kind of freeform editing, a lot of kind of jump cuts and really like fast paced kind of anxiety producing kind of editing. The color was much starker, more desaturated, and then a huge contrast to first class it's still a lot of it is handheld, but it's much more stable. It's much more kind of traditionally cut. It's lit a lot warmer, giving each car its own identity, production design wise, but sound design wise, and even editing wise, was really what we tried to achieve in the first season to try to make sure people feel oriented. When you touched on, on sound design, in a show like this, how much do you like to do in the edit because some editors you know they'll fill out their whole cut so that it all essentially like a gratch sound design and other editors they'll do it but they don't fill it in as much they just you know here's the door we'll just put the door in we won't search for all the best door how do you like to approach sound uh, when you're editing a show like snowpiercer yeah well we knew going into it that it was a huge component of the show and a real challenging creative component of the show because there's a danger of becoming really drowned in the monotony of, you know, just the train, the train, the train. <laughs> um, there was a lot of concern about that is how do we keep the sound of the show alive and dynamic and changing. In terms of our edits, it's interesting because that first episode, I mean, part of it was because of this anxiety that I was talking about around trying to make it as good as humanly possible. Like the offline audio mix of that first episode was completely insane. <laughs> it was completely insane. And I became, we did, we did interact with the sound house a little bit in terms of them feeding us stuff and them giving us design to put into the cut and that sort of thing. It's just kind of like the start, the very base layer. I forget how many tracks of audio would have been in that first episode, but it was layer upon layer. I don't know. It's more tracks than I've ever worked with, you know, just layers and beds and the way things uh, kind of move throughout the scene and change and how does the sound of a car change and what is the feeling of the sound of this car and how does it oscillate and change and then what's happening outside the train, you know, are they going over bumps, are they going up hills, or, you know, and all this kind of 
thinking, what are the sounds outside the train, inside the train? What, what's the flavor of the doors? You know, when a door opens, how does that feel? <laughs> you know, and, you know, I mean, these are very normal sound design concerns, but they were notes that I was getting in terms of the sounds of doors and the texture of the air, <laughs> like that sort of thing, you know, to a level that I've, I've never experienced where I'm just kind of executing the sound design of that show to that level. Mm -hmm. um, so it was actually an amazing experience. It kind of stretched certain skills <laughs> that I didn't <laughs> have to that degree. But to answer your question, the sound design on that first episode was incredibly complex. The other editors were like, what? <laughs> because <laughs> the other editors were like, do we have to, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so was, that was kind of more of just a first episode thing. And then it kind of loosened up after that. But still, I mean, sound is such an important part of the show, not just the way cars sound, but how do you travel emotionally through an episode? Mm -hmm. You know, and not just focusing on the realistic aspects of the sound, but how do you shift and bend it so you can kind of put the audience on a bit of a journey? And so they're not always just seeing the same thing. Now, did you did you read the original graphic novel or did you go into this fresh, I guess? You said. Yeah, I never read the novel, but I saw the movie and I saw the original pilot. And did you rely on anything from the original movie or for inspiration or...? No, because I really kind of didn't want to do what the movie was doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of had my own opinions on that movie and what I wanted to see in the series. And luckily, those kinds of feelings were mirrored by what Graham Manson, the writer, was doing with the show. Uh, also, just the original concept of the show, you know, the movie is very much a travel from the back to the front and that's mm -hmm. the journey that the audience is on i just always felt it would be stronger if you were contrasting yeah. the different parts of the train you know having leighton in that first season who represents the back of the train and having melanie who represents the front of the train dramatically just obviously is a justification for you to be able to jump back and forth you know that that was something that i really wanted to see in the series and i was happy that that they wrote it in that way yeah, in terms of editing, you know, I, yeah, it's interesting. I, I really never even considered how the movie was edited and how that may or may not be reflected in the series. <laughs> now I'm kind of <laughs> curious to think about that. But yeah, I mean, the show kind of developed its own editing style. I love seeing shows and films where if you pitched it in a meeting, it sounds insane. So like Snowpiercer, you're like, yeah, it's a train. It just goes around <laughs> yeah. the world. Otherwise, they'll die. Yeah. Planet of the Apes is the other one. It's the Planet of Apes. <laughs> I know. It's a crazy concept. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely bananas. <laughs> but it works. That's the thing that's so fast. That's what always fascinates me about those pitches. Yeah. Like, if it didn't work, we'd all be like, why would anyone sign off on that? Yeah. Yeah. One of my questions for you is in terms of how you like to assess your rushes or the, the media that you come in here and you get in. Um, from the set, what do you look for in the actor's performance or in in the in the footage that stands out to you or gets your attention? You know, I came from reality and factual programming. I started there. One of the things that you kind of have beaten into <laughs> when you're working in reality is you don't edit what they shot. Like you edit what it's supposed to be. You know, if it's a makeover show, 
the woman is always happy with her makeover, even if she wasn't. You know? <laughs> and, you know, I did a makeover show. And I, it's... I, I had a friend who went on one and she's like, I hated it. And I mean, like, we watched the show and I was like, you loved it. What are you talking about? <laughs> but, you know, I had an episode where a woman got a makeover and she was like, not really in, into it. And, but it doesn't matter. You just edit it as though she's into it. Yeah. With those format shows, that's kind of what the name of the game is, is you have to just follow the format. Mm-hmm. And I kind of brought that into scripted. I just kind of, when I started working in scripted, you know, you're not working with a format, but you're mm-hmm. working with an intention from the writer. Sometimes you have to go back a little bit. <laughs> like what was the writer's original, original intention? like before, you know, all the dialogue got written and everything. Like, what was the writer trying to achieve here? From that original intention, it often goes through a number of permutations and changes. And then maybe what you get into your edit suite isn't exactly what uh, they wanted. It was always kind of my approach to just kind of cut it as though they shot what they were intending for. You know, I talked before about developing your own internal barometer and your own kind of um, artistic, emotional reaction to things. You know, to me, I always kind of kind of keep what I believe, you know, that original intention to be, and then mark it against what is the footage that's coming in. And sometimes it just works, but sometimes you have to listen to that internal voice and your emotional reactions to things to tell you when it's wrong, you know? And when it's wrong, then you course correct. And, you know, I always try to do that way before anyone else sees it because it just makes things so much easier down the road. But some editors don't do that. Some editors just kind of are present what was shot. I don't think that's really the best policy. I think you really need to kind of develop your own perspective, your own stamp and stamp it on the footage <laughs> and then present it that way, what you think. Is there a scene in the show that you would say you're most proud of? Something that challenged you, but you were able to overcome one of the problems and you feel it stands out for you as something you're really proud of? I mean, for me, it's like, I'm always, I mean, you can't always do it, obviously, depending on the script or the footage or whatever. But I think the dream that I'm usually trying to aspire to is to create something that has its own propulsive momentum and drive and just always everything kind of folds off of each other in an organic way in a way that is being propelled by the images Mm -hmm. I mean a lot of shows are very dialogue driven but you know I really like working on shows that are very visual and still those can still sometimes kind of fall into the feeling of dialogue scene after dialogue scene Mm -hmm. when I'm most proud of the stuff that I work on. It's when I feel like there is a propulsion and drive that just comes from the juxtaposition of images and you just feel like it has a life of its own. And, you know, for me, I think the first episode of Snowpiercer was that where things were being driven by the imagery, not more so than the dialogue, but just there are long stretches that are just about the imagery and how it all connects together and how it shapes how you interpret it, the way it's put together. So, you know, I think that is a great example of that for me that I'm happy about. I think 
the first episode of season two is another one where it's very visually driven. And I just, I love working on that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. For me, a lot of the times the things I like are just where you can really latch onto an emotion too and really just explore that emotion. You know, an, an example for that is episode two in season two and Wilford has Kevin cut his wrists in the bath, manipulates Kevin into choosing to take his own life. And it's a very simple scene, but it's a little piece of mood there that I think really lets you get into the character's head, lets you understand Wilford and what is his glee in kind of making this guy choose this extreme choice and what is Kevin's reason. I think the kind of profound uh, answer for me out of that is that it's out of love. Kevin, you know, slices his wrists out of love for this man, which is an atypical motivation you wouldn't usually expect, but it was something that developed on the set. And then when I saw that, it's like, you got to make it about this. I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview. What would you say your favorite guilty pleasure film is to watch? Oh my goodness. Um, that's, uh, that's a, that's a hard one to be put on the spot. <laughs> um, the, uh, I mean, in Corona times, I'm spending a lot of time at home, <laughs> a lot of the time going through Blu-rays. I'm getting a lot of Blu-rays from Scream Factory, <laughs> a lot of 80s movies, a lot of 80s horror movies. Which, which horror and, movies? You know, I've just been going through a lot of John Carpenter movies. So I watched They Live, which I've never oh, seen before. Such a good film. Which was amazing. I couldn't believe how good it was. Again, another crazy concept if you pitched yeah. it. Yeah, and so relevant, you yeah. know. And so meaningful and can be interpreted in so many different ways, which I hope is Snowpiercer. I hope. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Let the audience decide. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to thank Jay for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Netflix for setting up this interview. And of course, Evan Winch for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.